each year as I'm planning out the messages for the months ahead, I come to this slot of time before Christmas. And I ask myself a question uh, that sort of goes like these adapted words from one of our hymns. What more can I say than to them I have said regarding Christmas? And yet, as I find myself reading through the texts of Christmas and thinking over the theme, each year it seems the Lord brings some truth to my heart that refreshes me, that I want to share with you. That is true with the theme for these four weeks of Christmas in 1992, as we talk about the glory of Christmas. The Christmas narrative, of course, includes many glorious events. We have, for example, the appearance of Gabriel to both Mary and Joseph with the announcement to each of them of the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there are the heavenly messengers that appear to uh, shepherds interrupting their evening chores with the news of the birth of the Christ in Bethlehem nearby. What glory! is involved in these angelic appearances and announcements. And then there is that special heavenly body, that unique star, which directed the Magi from the east to Palestine and eventually to Bethlehem to seek and to worship the king born for the Jews. There is glory in that. But the greatest glory of Christmas is a glory that is hidden from human eyes. It was not the glory of Gabriel as he appeared to Mary and Joseph. It was not the glory of the angels as they came to the fields of the shepherds. It was not the glory of that star that directed the wise men. No, the greatest glory was the glory that was within the babe born in the manger. God hid the greatest glory of Christmas within human flesh. This is not the first time that God hid his glory from human eyes. You recall that when the tabernacle was constructed in the Old Testament, God ordered them to build that tent of the meeting in a certain way, and there was this innermost compartment that was called the Holy of Holies, into which no one was allowed except the high priest, and he only once a year. And it was within that place, the Holy of Holies, that God hid his glory, the Shekinah glory, his presence. This series that we're going to study will seek to describe and to disclose some aspects of the glory of Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn with me this morning as we begin to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. Our study is going to be focused on John in these upcoming weeks, and we begin today with verse 5 of chapter 17. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The glory of Jesus Christ is revealed in his pre-existence. 
That is the doctrinal truth that I want you to grasp afresh this morning. The glory of Jesus Christ is revealed in his pre-existence. The Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus, is eternal. And as eternal God, he existed before the universe. This is not some small peripheral truth. This is a foundational truth to our faith. It is essential to the doctrine of the deity of Christ. If he is God, then he must be without boundary with regards to time. In other words, he must be eternal. And if he is eternal, then he must be God. The Lord Jesus Christ existed before time began. There are four truths about the glory of his preexistence that I want us to look at this morning. First of all, the glory of his preexistence reveals his eternal relation. Secondly, the glory of his preexistence was manifested in his work of creation. <clears throat> Thirdly, the glory of his preexistence was unaltered by the incarnation. And finally, the glory of his preexistence was enhanced by salvation. Let's think about those four truths before we go our way on this Lord's Day. First, the glory of Christ's preexistence reveals his eternal relation. Notice in this verse, the Lord Jesus is praying to God the Father. And he says to him, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. By the world, he means this ordered universe, not just the globe on which we live. Jesus Christ claims here to have been with the Father before the universe was created. This is not the first time, of course, that John presents this truth. Go back to the very first chapter with me and review again this first verse of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word or the logos, as the Greek term is, means a thought or a concept. And then its expression, it being revealed, the logos. It had a meaning to the Hebrews, it had a meaning to the Greeks. But John sanctifies the term and gives it a, a biblical, spiritual meaning when he says that Jesus Christ can be called the Logos, what he is saying is that in Jesus Christ we have the full mind of God. Everything that God is, is in Jesus Christ, and he is the expression of all that God is. That's what the term word means. It's not impersonal, it's personal, as verse 14 makes perfectly clear. 
It is the person of Jesus Christ who is the Word. And there are three facts about the Word that we see in verse 1. First it says that He was in the beginning. The emphasis is upon in the beginning He was. Here we have a statement like that of Genesis 1.1. In fact, it's allusion, an allusion to that verse. John is referring here to the inception or the genesis of the universe. And what he says is, when that took place, that inception of all things, the beginning, the genesis, the word was... John puts that in a tense in the Greek that means the word already was in existence. The word already has been when the Genesis took place, says John. Tenney says the expression does not refer to a particular moment of time but assumes a timeless eternity. In other words, when the clock began to tick, on the universe. When matter was brought into existence, and we'll talk about that in a moment, at that time the Word already had been. He's not a part of creation. He's not, as some false teachers try to tell us, the first thing that God created. As God Himself, He already had been in timeless existence when Genesis 1-1 took place. The second fact that we see about the Word is that He was with God. Now the preposition here, with, can mean a lot of things in the English. It can also mean a lot of things in the language in which John wrote. The literal meaning of it is to be face to face or to be toward it's describing here in this preposition a relationship between the two parties. It is the most intimate kind of relationship, a face-to-face relationship. It's not merely two who are walking together and with each other, but they are with each other. And what it says is that the word, Jesus Christ, was in intimate communion with God when Genesis 1-1 took place. It didn't begin then. It already had been from timeless eternity. Not only was he in intimate communion with God, but notice that he is in distinction from God. That seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? How can it be that the Word was with God and the Word was God at the same time? Well, the answer to that is found in the mystery of the triunity of the Godhead. That God is one, and yet God eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they are distinct, separate, individual, and yet all of the same essence, the same substance. They are all God, all deity, one God. 
And so it can be said that the Word was in intimate communion with God, that is, equal with God, and that the Word was God. And, and John says here literally, and God was the Word. He's really emphasizing the fact that the Word was deity himself. He is not identical with the Father, but he is of the same essence as the Father, of the same nature as the Father. So what do we see here? Well, the glory of Christ's preexistence shows to us, shows to us his eternal relation. As God the Son, he was eternally related to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Equal, of the same substance with them, and yet distinct from God the Father and God the Spirit. The glory of his eternal relationship to the Trinity. The second truth that we want to see is that the glory of his preexistence was manifested in the work of creation. John summarizes verse 1 and verse 2, but goes on in verse 3 to say, Through him, the word, all things were made. And without him nothing was made that has been made. By the way, notice here that all things were made. All things don't come out of matter, which is eternal, which is a fundamental doctrine of evolution. It is also a part of the Big Bang Theory, that matter has always existed. The Bible says that all things were made, that there was a time when they were not, they didn't exist, and then they were made, they came into existence, they became. And this happened not through a process, but through an event that took place. And what we learn in this verse is, regarding the glory of Christ's preexistence, that he participated in creation. The glory of his preexistence is that he is the creator. Now we, we hear this. And sometimes it gets to be customary and usual. Just think with me a moment about what we're talking about. Just take, for example, one star in all of the universe that we call the sun. If the sun that shines out there, not in Minnesota, at least it seems that way in the last month, but that sun that shines up there in the heavens, if it were a hollow ball... You could fit inside of that hollow ball 1,200,000 planet Earths and have room left over for 4,300,000 moons to stuff in around the corners. That's just the sun. The nearest star to us is called Alpha Centauri. And that nearest star is five times bigger than our sun. Beltakis, which is one of the visible stars 
in the constellation called Orion the Hunter. That one star, visible in that one constellation, is 248 times bigger than our sun. And Arcturus is 10 times bigger than Beltagis. In other words, it's 2,480 times bigger than our sun, which takes over a million Earths and over four million moons to fill. Now, we're just talking about the size of some of these heavenly bodies. By the way, Arcturus and Orion, as well as some of the other constellations are mentioned in the Bible, Job 9, Job 38. God points to them and he says, you want to see my glory? Look at this. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. That's faster than most preachers drive. 186,000 miles a second. Do you know that it would take you a second and a half to get to the moon if you could do it? A second and a half to get all the way to the moon. Now let's suppose you wanted to go a little further and go to Mercury. It would take you four and a half minutes only. Or that you wanted to go to Jupiter. You could be there in 35 minutes at the speed of light. Or if you wanted to go all the way to Saturn and see those rings, it would take you 60 minutes, just an hour, at the speed of light to get there. Now we haven't gone out of our solar system yet. So let's do that. Let's go beyond our own solar system to go to the nearest star. To this star that's called Alpha Centauri. How long would it take us to get there to examine this heavenly body that is five times bigger than our sun? At the speed of light, it will take you four years and four months to get to the nearest star outside of our own uh, solar system. And then, if you were real ambitious, and you said, I'd like to get beyond our galaxy and go beyond the Milky Way. There's a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Milky Way. The next solar system, or next galaxy out there, Snickers, right? <laughs> Let's suppose you wanted to get beyond the Milky Way, and that's just this one galaxy in which we are little pinpoint. How long would it take you to get to the edge of the galaxy that we live in? At the speed of light now, and remember the speed of light you can be to the moon in a second and a half. You want to get to the edge of our galaxy, it will take you 100,000 years at the speed of light. That's just our Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is made up of 100 billion stars, at least. That takes Carl Sagan to really say that. So I'll try to say it like he does. Out there in the universe, there are billions of galaxies. Some smaller, some bigger than our Milky Way. Now, the glory of Jesus Christ's preexistence is manifested in the fact that he created all of that. It says here, through him all things were made. It doesn't just mean all things in a big lump. It means all things individually and particularly. 
That's the word. That's the meaning of it. He is the agent of creation. The scriptures say that through him all things were made. On your own sometime look up 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Or Colossians 1, 16 and 17. But turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 1. Just for a moment. Because I want you to see that not only did he bring all of this into existence... Not only does he keep it all together, but it all will find its destiny in him as its creator. Now if we had time to point out the context, you would see in Hebrews 1, it's talking about Jesus Christ. And God says about him and to him, quoting here now from Psalms, Beginning in verse 10. In the beginning, O Lord. Now here's God the Father speaking to God the Son. He says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment like a pair of socks. They're just going to wear out. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. He points again to the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that the glory of his eternity, of his pre-existence, was manifested in his work of creation. The third truth I want us to see is that the glory of Christ's pre-existence was unaltered by his incarnation. Going back again to the Gospel of John, the first chapter, we come to a verse that will be our key verse for next week. But we want to point to it this morning as we say the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory as of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The glory of Jesus Christ in His preexistence was unaltered when He came in human flesh. It was hidden His glory was hidden in that flesh, but it was not diminished, it was not altered by his union with humanity. His glory remained intact during his earthly ministry. And John tells us that at that wedding feast of Cana, Jesus began to show forth his glory. That is, he began to give man a peek at what was inside of him and who he really was by the miracle of changing the water into wine. And so he stood before his enemies in John chapter 8 and verse 58 and he said to them, Before Abraham was, what? I am. He's pointing back 1,800 years 
Almost as much time had passed from Abraham's day to Jesus as from Jesus' day to ours. And he says to these people who were denying who he was, God himself, before Abraham was 1,800 years ago, I am. And many of you know that when he said, I am, it had a particular meaning to the Jews because God revealed himself to Moses by that special name there at the burning bush. Moses said, who will I say has sent me? And God said, tell them that I am has sent you. It's the name for God. Jesus is claiming here that before Abraham even was born, he was in existence continually as God. In John chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. We don't have time to look at the context there. I simply point out to you that Jesus says the Son of Man came from heaven. That's his origin. Micah, speaking hundreds of years before he was born in Bethlehem, named Bethlehem as the birthplace of Messiah and said that out of Bethlehem would come forth he whose goings forth had been from days of eternity. That is, his actions, his deeds had been from eternity and he would come forth from Bethlehem. What was he saying? He's saying that the babe to be born in the manger existed before Bethlehem before the world from days of eternity. The glory of Jesus Christ was unaltered in his incarnation. It was hidden. It was covered by human flesh, sinless human flesh, united forever with sinless human nature, but the glory was unaltered. It was still there, undiminished. Now the final truth I want us to see this morning is one that relates very directly to you and me because it says the glory of his preexistence was enhanced by salvation. I am not saying that somehow he is more glorious, but his glory is seen to a greater extent. It's been drawn out to be more visible by salvation. We need to go back to John chapter 17. Before we close, I've read verse 5 for you. I want to go on now to verse 22 and verse 24. Jesus continues praying to the Father and he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are. Oh, I wish I had time to talk about that. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And so Jesus prays, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before. On this night before he goes to the cross, Jesus recalls with longing 
the glory that he enjoyed before coming into the world, the visible glory. He says, Father, glorify me with what I experienced alongside of you in your presence before I came into the world. So great was the joy, so supreme the delight between the Father and the Son before creation that the impression of it on his consciousness as he came into the world was never lost. And he longed for the resumption of that glory. It included serene enjoyment of the Father's presence, unmixed with suffering, as William Hendrickson says. So we can begin to see how incomprehensible and how infinite his condescension in coming to Bethlehem. His saving sacrifice was purposed by God to accomplish redemption for his people. Here we have Jesus Christ praying as though the cross were already behind him, even though it's a few hours in front of him. And already he's anticipating his return to glory. And he's anticipating bringing along with him the redeemed. Was Jesus being selfish when he was praying that he might be glorified? Not at all. He is God and all that God does indeed is for his own glory. There is no greater good for us than what is for the glory of God. God is glorified in his works. He delights in his works. And his work includes salvation for his people. And his purpose is that his people will share his glory. Jesus here is anticipating the joy of being with the Father again in the company of the saved so that the two can never be separated again. Who for the joy set before him, writes the author of Hebrews, he endured the cross. Who for the joy set before him. What is that joy? Being back with the Father and bringing with him the redeemed. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. As the eternal Son, He gives life to all of those who trust in Him. He gives eternal life to those who will trust in Him. The very life of God Himself. And we see here that He prays that all of those to whom He's given life and who have been given to Him by God will one day be with Him in glory. This is one of the reasons that I believe in the security of the Christian. Because Jesus has prayed for us that belonging to him we might never be lost. Belonging to him we might one day be with him in glory. And is God the Father going to deny the prayer of his beloved son? You see, God loves his children the redeemed, just as much as he loves his beloved son, just as much. And he will one day bring his children home to glory. 
And we will be there and we will see the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory that he had before he came into the world. We're going to see that with our glorified eyes and participate in it. We will never share his essential glory as God. We can't. We're created. But we are privileged to share the glory that he extends to us in reigning with him, in being united to him, in having his eternal life as our possession. I hope that's your possession today. There was a man named Fullerton one time who shared this testimony about his own struggle spiritually. He said, One Sunday morning I made up my mind to be a Christian and never doubted that I would do so. I thought I must leave off this evil thing and that wicked habit and do only things that are good. I must read my Bible more, pray more, repent and weep if possible. So I began. On Sunday I prospered. On Monday and Tuesday I almost succeeded. But on Wednesday and Thursday I made some serious slips. Finally on Friday I gave up in disgust. I began the same process again the next Sunday. In my self-confidence I thought I knew now where I had gone wrong. So I increased my devotions, prayed more, and was careful to restrain my evil habits. Still I did not find peace. Then I heard the new minister give his first address. He expounded on many things, but I can remember only one sentence, and that was the living word of God to me. Quote, All you have to do to be saved is to take God's gift and say thank you. Close quote. Up to now, I had been trying to get the Lord to take my gift and to make that offering worthy of his acceptance. Now I saw that it was I who had to do the taking and that Christ was the one I must receive. My heart turned to him in gratitude. I took the gift, and I've been saying thank you ever since. Have you taken the gift and said thank you? Let's pray. My friend, if you've been trying, like this man, to be a Christian... It's time to stop. You can't make yourself a Christian. God is the one who makes Christians. And he does that when we take the gift and say thank you. Jesus came into the world that he might go to the cross, pay for your sins and take you back to heaven with himself that you might see and experience his glory Will you today receive the gift? Will you tell God thank you as an act of faith? I hope you will. Right where you're seated. Right at this moment. Just in your heart. Receive and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Father God, we thank you today for your Son. Glorious in his preexistence. And we worship you through him today because he revealed you to us. And we receive him with gratitude. And we anticipate with great joy 
that day when we will be with you and see his glory and share in it by the grace of God. Thank you. Amen.